Hello there. Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk Podcast, a center for human rights podcast series exploring a range of human rights issues through conversations with academics, practitioners, and activists. I am your host, Victoria Amici. Let's dive in. Welcome to this episode of Africa Rights Talk and thank you for coming on the podcast. And I would like you to introduce yourself to the audience. Want to know who you are, what you do, and nature of your work. Okay. Um, thank you very much uh, for the invitation. It's much appreciated. Um, it's always good to share what, what it is that we do at the university with, the, uh, with a broader audience of people. Um, my name is Ndumiso Jaja, and um, I teach in the Department of Jurisprudence. Um, I teach, I'm a philosopher by training, um, but the object of my philosophizing um, over the past decade or so has been law, politics, and, and history. And so my writings and research are really distributed in their relations, in their interrelations between the political, the legal world, and and the historical. Okay. Yeah. So we're here because of, I mean, obviously tomorrow is Mandela Day, and we'd like to ask about your opinion. What do you think Mandela Day is about? The significance? What does it mean to you personally? And what do you think it means to South Africans? How do you celebrate it? Yes. Um, so, you know, uh, Mandela is a difficult figure because one uh, tends to want to avoid being unfair and placing too much historical responsibility at the feet of a single man. Um, and it is important to understand that he is merely a symbol, uh, a, a symbol for a system which used him in a particular way. And so very often he willingly in some ways stood for that system to become its face uh, but some of the things which i might say uh, extend not simply to mandela himself uh, but the system of which he was part of so um i actually just uh, returned from a, 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 a teaching and research trip to the netherlands uh, in which i actually structured a course um, which asked the question, you know, why Mandela? You know, so I was very struck in the Netherlands, which, you know, is one of the colonial conqueror societies um, of, of South Africa. If you've studied law here, you will have studied, uh, you know, the Roman Dutch law and come across names like Hugo Grotius or De Groot and, and Foot in your studies. So, we have an intimate history with the Netherlands, although uh, intimacy may be seen as a euphemism because it's a forced intimacy in which they landed upon us and exerted a rapacious violence in order to erect the political order from which we've yet to recover. Now, in the Netherlands, in, 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 in Amsterdam, they have a Nelson Mandela Park. In The Hague, the city where I was teaching, they have a Nelson Mandela statue. And I took the students there to go and see, uh, you know, to ask, 
what is it that Mandela has done for the Netherlands that it has its own national heroes that have no statues but Mandela was considered to be significant enough to erect a statue of course there's one of him in New York and another in the financial center of London so um there is something which is to be asked uh, you know um there is a general um truism within liberation politics that the the heroes of the oppressor are usually uh are usually um, not the heroes of the oppressed and so whenever it is that a historical oppressor selects amongst the oppressed people a figure in order to to really present them as a universal hero one needs to ask oneself the question what this figure represents for the interests of of in this case the conqueror and so you know um it is by no accident that of all of all the the incredible human beings that have been produced in south africa's history and struggle for liberation this is a is the one you know uh whose uh, whose whose face whose image uh adorns uh, the financial centers of western europe and so um i do think that my own interpretation of mandela from an african philosophical perspective is to establish whether or not these statues the figure of mandela is an embodiment of of the will of his own people's understanding of him or whether it's a figure which arises from the imagination of the other side and i would i would tend to suspect rather that this is in fact the case you know um because there are many names that are erased from from history uh his is even on money i think it's it's also it is it is not a, an insignificant fact that uh, his face uh, adorns the the money the currency of south africa as well you know um knowing very well that our people have very little of that money uh you know it it is it it is a it is a metaphoric answer to the question whose mandela is it you know those that have the money that bears his face it it is it is those but we we will unpack the historical dimension of this yeah i think you're speaking on your behalf and also feel as to what it means to celebrate mandela day and not everyone is uh, privileged to have that understanding of oppression and discrimination so what do you think people on the other side how are they viewing this like how are they seeing mandela day they see it as or oh, we are now liberated this is coming from i i think from the privileged position of education of re-envisioning freedom so i feel like a lot of people feel like mandela did so much to get to where we are both white south africans both black south africans i'm asking do you think south africans believe what you say or think otherwise yeah so i mean look it it is not a religion and is not simply a question of belief i think if you study the distribution of income if you study the distribution of property if you study the differences in life expectancies that mean between black and white south africans if you study the vulnerability to wanton violence uh, the the exposure to deadly pollution you will see that the indigenous conquered people represent the largest majority even accounting for their statistical uh, majority Uh, of those who die who who 
who are preoccupied with their business of death and dying in South Africa. So this is that variance with the, I mean, so we, we to return to the historical picture, I guess one of the major preoccupations of my work is with this, um, with the presentation of the major problem in South African history having been apartheid. Mandela is very much part of the picture. Um, he, he is very much part of the picture uh, of the narrative of South Africa's major problem as apartheid. And according to this picture, the end of apartheid would, would resolve the historical problem of South Africa. Now I'm suggesting that, um, and this is not my sole suggestion, that South Africa's problem um, in, its, it, in its contemporary iteration can be traced back to the 17th century with the presence of this Roman Dutch law. So it is the conquest of, beginning with the Cape and then the move of the Europeans inward that established uh, this, this state of being. This state of being we call the state of conquest. You know, So conquest is a method of forcibly asserting an illegitimate sovereignty over a, a territory and its peoples to rule them. Sovereignty, um, you know, so it is to establish supreme power over the persons of people, even giving them law, but not by consent, but by force, you know. And so apartheid is was really just a 50-year period in the history of conquest in South Africa. It was preceded by, by 200 and something years of an ongoing problem. So we have certainly ended apartheid, uh, uh, but we haven't resolved the state of conquest. Much of the territory was seized long before apartheid. You know, you know, the 1913 Land Act precedes the birth of apartheid by several decades. The Glen Grey Act uh, in the previous century, even longer than that. So the question is, why the preoccupation with apartheid, a mere juridical and policy specification of conquest rather than conquest itself. So Mandela is very much part of the picture of the primary contradiction in South Africa being one of democracy. If, if we get the vote, then everything will be fine. You know, and, and of course, this is, is not at all the case. You know? And so my, this, this is not a view which has been popularized in the way that teaching is done. Um, and it's not simply a matter of education. There are many uh, scholars who do pursue the, you know, uh, one eminent uh, historical sociologist, Bernard Makubane of the ANC, edited a seven-volume study of South African uh, politics called The Road to Democracy. You can see by the title of this text that it betrays the ideological inclination of the ANC, that the major problem in South Africa was democracy, you know, and um, this, this is the kind of, this is the reason for which Mandela, the, the, those that actually enjoy power over South Africa have much reason to be grateful to Mandela because he was able to legitimate their power and rid it of all the moral snares that it had under apartheid. But they were able to retain that power um, 
you know, but now it, he has cleansed it. So his presentation as a Messiah, he cannot be lost to anyone who reads the text of history carefully. He goes away for 27 years and much like God's only son, who is charged with the history of mankind's sins and can cleanse them himself by dying. He goes, you know, to prison for us and then he forgives, you know. In theoretical terms, one needs to ask the question, if, uh, for instance, I were to commit a moral and criminal violation of our sister behind the camera, could you forgive me on her behalf? Is it possible, you know, if I were to commit crimes against the both of you, could you forgive me on her behalf? This is the question, you know. So the miracle of Mandela's forgiveness rests on a mystery, uh, you know, much like the mystery of Jesus Christ, that he is able to die for the sins of even those who have not been born. So uh, you can see the... You can, well, well, I suppose that behind the deification mm. of Mandela, his, his, his becoming Jesus, mm. is the concealment of the fact of this absent freedom, you know. And why I said I don't want to blame him in particular, he did not construct himself as Jesus. It took a lot of money, of biographers, of uh, financial institutions who have funded this version of history. It is not something that I could not make myself a Mandela, you know, uh, lots of people, lots of institutions have to, but the clue can be found in the history of the, so the, the, the African National Congress. Uh, many of our colleagues in the PAC have suggested that the ANC left the liberation movement in 1955 with the adoption of the Freedom Charter, which asserted South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white. Their question was, of course, if whites came here as conquerors and successors entitled to conquest, how did it become their country? You know, that this was, in fact, the accession to force and violence, that if somebody invades your house and then you declare the house belongs to you and I, this means that you are actually submitting to brute force, and it cannot be considered to be justice. You are owed reparations for your loss, uh, and this person also needs to be given justice for what they have done. But in fact, a careful student of history um, will see that the ANC already, by 1914, wrote a petition to George V in order to appeal uh, some of the legislation of the Union of South Africa. In this petition, the ANC states very clearly that they are subjects of the British Crown and that the territory of South Africa belongs to the Crown and the sovereignty of the King, okay? So this means already by 1914, there is no question about the ANC being a liberation movement. The question of liberation is primarily about the, the question of freedom, as you say, the ability to exercise one's own will as one sees fit. So conquest is at odds with freedom. 
but the ANC already gave up its 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 pursuit of freedom by 1914 when they declared that their sovereignty over South Africa belonged to the British Crown. They were merely fighting for civil and political rights. So the ANC can properly be characterized as a civil and political rights movement, not a liberation movement. This was a conclusion which other African governments reached, in fact, that you are not fighting to reassert a sovereign title over your country. In fact, you do not even believe that it is your country. You merely wish to be treated as equal citizens in that country, not to rule, not to assert a competing. So the, the, the support of this particular method of engaging in activism by the West is because, of course, in the meantime, you see, they have uh, asserted control over the diamonds, over the gold, over the cobalt, over the platinum. If we were talking about reasserting sovereign title, the legitimacy of all of these things that they have sold would be called into question. That how could you have sold diamonds to Anglo-American if it was not your country. So that sort of argument would have destabilized the, the economic interests of the people that love Mandela so much. So the celebration of Mandela has to be taken in part with the ownership and control over the resources and labor of, of South Africa. If he was only wanting to be treated like a white man, uh, then all, all the better, you know, all the better, if that is all that this guy wants for his people. Those who argued otherwise generally did not survive long prison sentences. Steve Biko is an example of a person who, using the metaphor of a table, suggests that in a liberated Azania, the objective is not for black people to sit on a table of whites. This is our table. They must leave the table, which we will arrange in a suitable African style. This is a metaphor for the economic system, for the political system, uh, and the rejoining of South Africa, of the African continent, that it is not a province of Europe. It is an African polity, okay? Once we have rearranged the table in the African style, then those who wish to dine with us on our table, as they would in any other country, are welcome. You see, white people in South Africa are not immigrants. They are conquerors. An immigrant uh, is someone who comes to a country to become part of the country and its people. When a white man leaves South Africa to move to Germany today, within three years, he learns German, he practices the German laws, pursues a German woman in order to forget to become German. Yet in South Africa, of, of, over almost four centuries, it is a general truism that whites do not speak our languages. They maintain a discrete community which parasitically derives uh, a great part of the wealth of the country uh, with the indigenous conquered people as their subjects. This is not immigration. It is conquest, okay? So those of Mandela's contemporaries, predecessors, and successors in time, who asked the question, you know, uh, who asserted Israel to, it is our land, 
okay these people didn't see the light of day they were eliminated you know they were eliminated one by one in various kinds of ways and you have to ask yourself why it is that this is the is the hero who, who has been chosen for us you know so it, it 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 has to be taken in light of these historical antagonisms mm. oh that's, that's that's interesting you talked about how south africa's history is made to start from apartheid and but we are only allowed to talk about history from you know the 60s and the 50s my next question is to ask in your opinion how do you think south africa has come to the terms of achieving social justice, equality, and freedom. Is celebrating days like Mandela, or maybe in the future, Steve Biko Day, representation? Uh, look, I think the positive of the day is that it, it places us in a position to ask questions about what it means and, and where it comes from, you know. Um, so having days on the calendar that enjoin people to reflect critically is always welcome. Of course, the objective of those who declared Mandela Day were to worship a hero and everyone is told to do some good service. You see, to exercise a spirit of charity, you know, charity is a, a, a fundamentally corrupt method of pursuing the question of justice. Um, charity is, is no is no substitute for justice. If, if, if your people are impoverished, because their crops and the land where they are supposed to grow their crops have been stolen. To have a day where they are given leftovers from the supermarkets is no justice. Um, the function of such a thing is actually to sustain the problem, you know, is to sustain the problem itself rather than addressing the main question, which is, you know, how how did these people become impoverished in the first place? A, a historical reflection upon South Africa shows that, in fact, uh, this land question, which is much misunderstood, is not simply a question of agriculture or urban dwelling. Um, to ask the question, whose land is it, is actually to ask a question about the legal and political order, uh, which sustains in a particular territory. But the question, um, you know, is that a lot of land, you know, was taken from black people, not because white people even intended to use it. Um, land represented the last vestiges of freedom, of economic sovereignty. If you had a piece of land and you had cattle and crops, there was no need for you to go and work for the white man, even as he had butchered a neighboring village, found a mine and was sending people to dig for gold. Why would you go and dig for gold when you have your wonderful family, you have your cattle, you have your land to tend to? So people did not voluntarily go and risk their lives for meager wages. What the white man did was to realize that so long as these people can sustain themselves and live in their own economic order, there is no way to entice them for our printed paper to come and risk their lives. The only way that we can force them into our service is if we take everything from them so that they have only their labor left to sell. So what they did, if they didn't forcibly take their land uh, and leave people landless so that they had to sell their labor to feed their families, what they did was to impose taxes so you have a hundred cattle, 
will tax each head of cattle you have for five pounds each. Where are you going to find the money? You, you don't have money. You've never used money. Your people use cattle. So you would have to sell your cattle, one cow to pay for the other cows, uh, to the white man who is the only one who has the money that he has made, the money that bears Mandela's face today. You would have to sell all your cattle eventually in order to survive the taxation, a taxation imposed upon you without having any political say in the use of the country's budget. You know, so a theft, a legalized theft by, by an unlawful occupier and conqueror of your territory. But the objective of bringing you to heel is in order that you have nothing left except for your body to sell, you know, that you become a wage slave. So this, you know, so the idea that you could accomplish liberation, freedom, social justice without addressing the, how it is that we ended up in this situation in the first place to suggest that people can be poor. How can people be poor today? Why are people poor today when, for instance, there are hundreds of farms that grow fruit that is thrown away and wasted when it cannot be converted into ciders and grape juice by the winers of series in the, in the Cape. How can we say that uh, there, there is hunger here when chickens are, are culled and, and, and thrown away uh, by, 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 the, by the thousands and hundreds of thousands? Because the model of profit which is used by our society, which has been agreed to, requires a demand for things in order for them to have a value. And if you simply give away those things which are available and have been produced, it disincentivizes anyone for paying for them. So we waste a great deal of food, we waste a great deal of everything in order to sustain the value of goods. This is one of the things that was agreed to in the negotiations of our brother who faces on their money today, that this money, in order to retain value, would place profit above human welfare. The Sutu people uh, of, the, of the north in, in Limpopo have a saying that says, it's one of the economic principles of Ubuntu philosophy. That means when one is given a choice between human life and profit, one must always choose human life. But we have a system that wastes food, that throws away food every single day while people remain hungry and the price of food increases precisely because of how much waste is produced. So um, the, the point is that our ancestors would consider this madness. Uh, you know, this would be considered madness. How can people in the village starve when so much food is being thrown away? So it's a method of distribution. To say that people are poor is not to state a mere fact. It is to choose a particular way of doing things, a way of doing things which Mandela unfortunately acceded to. This was not the approach of everyone within the liberation movement. So to speak of social justice, all of the things that you see, all these wrongs, they happen as a result, first of all, of the hunger which people find themselves in. Uh, the kind of social inequalities it is a question of, of distribution. Everything from violence, it is a question which relates, first of all, to the question of property and distribution, uh, which these guys agreed to. Dietlerk um, made them agree 
to his constitutional principles even before a democratic election. That was what Kodesa established, that regardless of who wins an election, this will be in the text of the constitution. This constitution that they say they have written, I can assure you that a careful examination of the history of its birth will show you that, you know, Duterte was done with this thing long before 1996, you know. So, but one of the things that it was to ensure was precisely this situation. So there can be no social justice uh, when money is the possibility condition of the right to life, um, which implies the right to food. When money is the possibility condition for decent medicare, for clean water, you know, when money is the possibility condition for the recognition of the value of human life, there can be no social justice except for those who uh, have money. And that is no justice at all. I want to ask on that. Okay, you've already like, mentioned everything in total because you said that Mandela is a day to reflect on how you're here. I want to ask about what you think going forward as we are reflecting on Mandela Day. Do you think other challenges that face us in achieving social justice and equality and freedom? Because we have a majority below the poverty line, which is a lot to reflect on. If we indeed we've been saved from oppression through post-apartheid constitution, so what do you think are those challenges? How do you think we must address them? Ooh, this is a this is a large question. Um, yeah. So I mean. <laughs> I think one of the features of Mandela's specific political tradition, and uh, which is part of the reason for his um, wide celebration, is also thinking of South Africa as South Africa. Um, if if one looks at Africa in the 1950s, uh, you know, if one looks at Ghana in 1957, 58, um, the African leaders at that time did not consider their countries to be islands uh, along the boundaries which had been drawn on the continent by the colonial conquerors. Um, even some of those constitutions mm -hmm. included sections which voluntarily surrendered the sovereignty of those territories to a United States of Africa. Um, and, you know, the, the, the long durée history and archaeology of Africa suggests uh, precisely that these nation states are themselves a, a ridiculous, uh, they, they are a ridiculous invention which have to do with the exploitation of the peoples and the resources of the continent by its historical enemies. Um, so those people who wished to bring an end to this posed a major, 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 major threat uh, to, to, to the colonial conquerors and were eliminated. You know, I mean, uh, Nkrumah's, the coup of Ghana in, in 1965 and his eventual poisoning in Guinea in part had to do precisely with this. And the, you can see even by the, those statesmen, uh, you know, Mandela was a contemporary of Mangaliso Sobukwe of the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania. Uh, Nkuma chose the PAC um, as his partner, you know, in, in the original plan for the liberation of South Africa, uh, of the African continent in its entirety by 1963. Of course, you know, between that period, between the Sharpeville massacre, so-called, 
um, and 1965, all these people had been eliminated. Patrice Lumumba had been killed. The coup then happened in Ghana. Um, Sobukwe was imprisoned in an unprecedented. The Mandela was, this is not the, the part of the thinking. Now, part of this thinking, uh, Nkrumah, after the coup d'etat, wrote a book called Neocolonialism, the highest stage of imperialism. This book uh, indicts uh, South African capital, in particular the Oppenheimer family and Anglo-America uh, for its adventures in the destruction of the African continent. The problem is today as it was for our forebearers in the 1960s, the restoration of sovereignty. One of the major impediments of all this development talk of what's wrong with Africa, they are so rich, uh, but yet their people are so poor. It is exactly as I'm telling you about the wasted chickens and apples of South Africa. We are so rich, so much food is produced, but the people are hungry. So the point is that it is not, if you gave a referendum to the people of the country today, say, do you think it makes sense to throw away uh, all of this food when people are hungry, I can guarantee you that if it was up to the people, the, the judgment, the answer would be no. It makes no sense. Resolve the question of hunger. The resolution of hunger serves everyone in the country, uh, even those who have property and are afraid that people are going to jump the fence and steal it, can sleep a lot easier when people are fed and do not have to take adventures into the suburbs in order to feed their children. So the point is that if it is not the people, if we know that a referendum, a democratic assessment of people's will would find that keeping people hungry serves no one and we should stop it today. The question is who rules? Why is it so that the law does not reflect what we understand to be popular will? If we put it to a referendum, if everybody should have a place to stay and we can demonstrate that enough resources exist for that to happen. I can assure you that a great majority of the indigenous people would suggest that this should be done. So the question is, who rules that this cannot become law? So the presentation of the transition to democracy, as they call it, uh, suggests that we have sovereign power. And this is not just a question of South Africa. This is why I started with our forebearers. Nkrumah recognized in neocolonialism that Africa only has nominal sovereignty. We are called sovereigns according to the papers. But African uh, legislatures do not have the power to make law which is binding. We, otherwise, we could make a law, for instance, confiscating what has been stolen. Uh, much of what is stolen still profits others except for Africans today all over the continent. The Congo is a living hell today as a result of the profits which are being made by everyone but the Congolese. And yet you will say, what is wrong with this Congolese government? The truth is, those are, that is no government, you, you know. So in South Africa, this was accomplished by the constitution. So you know that the, the Boers, when they were in power, 
uh, practiced what they called parliamentary sovereignty, okay? That means if all the elected officials sit down and decide to make a law, as they did in 1913, that we take this land from the natives and we keep it in our hands, they could make that law immediately without needing permission from everyone, anyone. What Duterte did, if you study the 1992 white referendum, where white South Africans were asked to give a mandate to the National Party to negotiate with the ANC, Duterte promised whites who gave him a yes vote, who gave him a mandate, three things that are important. One, he promised them that they would be able to retain their property. Two, he promised them that South Africa would maintain a free market economic system, the one that throws away chickens in order to make profit, okay? Three, he promised them that there would be a supreme constitution, that he would establish constitutional principles which would be binding on a future popular exercise of power and they, that the legislature would there too, would thereafter be superseded by a constitution uh, which they would determine. This would mean no matter how many votes it is that they got, they could still prevent their exercise of legislative will. Therefore, their sovereign would move from parliament, which is a true expression of the people's will, to the constitution. Um, and so throughout South Africa's history, until the ascendancy of the democratic regime, South Africa was a parliamentary sovereignty, much like the United Kingdom has been for hundreds of years. But when the blacks were supposed to finally be able to make laws in order to, to address these historical injustices, suddenly parliament's power was taken and superseded with the constitution, which any law would have to be con would have to be consistent with the dictates of that constitution, which was not established democratically. So you cannot make a law like they made in 1913. You cannot even unmake that law uh, simply by, by, by showing that you have um, the mandate of the people. The people are subject to the men and women on the hill who have not been elected democratically to determine whether or not uh, the will of the people is consistent with the clerk's will. So this is the first thing that we need to get rid of, uh, you know, because it makes impossible democracy. If what we have is a juristocracy. We are ruled by a law which is not our own, and we have not the capacity to put that law out of the way and rule by you know, we are ruled by the law of profit. And it is not by accident. Uh, but this is not our own problem only as a country. It is a problem of the African continent. In general, African governments adopted what they call in international law government succession rather than state succession. This means they inherited their debts of their predecessor, colonial thug governments who had been borrowing money in the instance of South Africa to buy guns to shoot the children of South Africa, who had sold their resources illegitimately. We were supposed to be bound by these agreements um, and then call this thing a democracy. Uh, when the great amount of the power and capacity of our societies 
have been taken by our, you know. So this is the thing that one needs to be brought to popular consciousness um, so that the people of South Africa understand that, yes, of course, politicians are corrupt, uh, but this is hardly... This is hardly the, the 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 nexus of the matter of why nothing will change here. It is a it is a question of design. It was established already that nothing would change, and because Mandela gave such a smiling granddad face uh, to this whole horrible affair, which leads to so much needless death and dying, he is made a hero on money with statues around the world. But this is. It is because this system is immensely profitable uh, to, to the owners of South Africa. So we need to get it back. We need the whole continent back. The PAC used to say, Maibuye i Africa, not in South Africa, i Africa. Until we understand the interrelated nature of the struggle which we are all faced with, they will continue to place puppets on our money all around the continent until we take our destiny back. And I'm afraid it's been a long time since the general consciousness of Africans was collective of their historical. The general consciousness of Africans was collective of their historical plight, you know. Okay. Mm. Interesting, I, I do agree with you. Quite interesting. What role does the youth play going forward? You've talked about how Mandela's situation is a bit tricky, if you understand how what we know has been ordained by, you know, supranational powers. How do we place the youth in today's fight? And do we need more youths to be like Mandela? Or do we need more youths to be, to actually understand the complexity of this struggle? Why our future is not going to be any different if we don't address the historical nature of our oppression? So how do we bring the youths into this? So, firstly, I should say that, um, it, to be fair, you know, uh, Mandela was the, was the better amongst the people. Uh, a lot of people faced with seeing gross injustice are quite happy to do nothing. He was a lawyer and could have made a lucrative practice rather than involving himself in, in the collective struggle of African people. Um, and so, you know, the, this kind of attitude that understands suffering uh, of others as our own suffering, that we, one cannot have joy and enjoy themselves while others needlessly suffer, is, a, is an attitude that certainly should be adopted. One of the major criticisms of the Africanists who left the ANC was this, and this is something that is important to the youth, Many of the people who I'm saying were killed and didn't see the light of day or long prison sentences. One of the peculiar features of their political movements are what we can call intellectual sovereignty. They insisted on the necessity of studying the problems and thinking for themselves. So many of their constitutions, for instance, uh, of the Black Consciousness Movement or the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania didn't admit white members in so long as white supremacy remained in South Africa, they thought whites who are interested in the liberation of, of South Africa should go and use their power in their own communities amongst their fathers and, and mothers who own their minds, who, who, who direct their militaries. That's where they should, but that black people should organize together to study the nature of their problem and decide on a way forward. 
their point was that not having intellectual sovereignty, not thinking for yourself, places you in the danger of being used by others who tell you what their problem is. And this is what happened to the African National Congress. It, it was it gave up the business of thinking for itself to another group of people so that even the best of its young women and men who wished to do something were receiving instructions from others who had worked out their problem. So the question for the students and young people today is the importance of thinking for yourself. This means even when watching a news bulletin, being told what is happening in Russia and China, one must never be satisfied simply to hear it from the bulletin. One needs to go to the library and engage in an independent course of study to understand the history of the actors that are being portrayed. This includes suspicion of your own lecturers. Everything which I have said here, uh, you need not accept what you hear in podcasts as the gospel truth. Uh, one needs to practice the discipline of assessing what one is told by looking for sources, by verifying this before taking action. One must not take action simply on a sermon that one hears what the nature of the problem is, especially when you are aroused and something resonates with what you have witnessed. It is important to study the veracity of what is being said. Um, that is how we will not end up being given heroes who are actually our villains. Um, so the, the problem is that all of us are called, in, even as we are training at the university to take up their professions. Uh, for instance, um, much of the evil of colonial conquest uh, happened with the aid of lawyers and continues with the aid of lawyers today. What do people who study corporate law and go and work for a, a firm believe that they do? Uh, when a mining company poisons water and air, it requires lawyers who will defend that in order to secure its profits. So when you say, oh, one day I'm going to practice corporate law, mergers and acquisitions, <laughs> uh, what do you imagine, you know, beyond the, the abstractions uh, of the juridical method, are the human costs and motives of the institutions which will use your labor? So, you know, um, Everybody says, oh, oh, I specialize in the production of nails. I think, you know, that the nails that you produce are used to make bombs that kill uh, hundreds of thousands of people is not your business. You are a specialist of producing this particular part. So the conscientious student needs to assess when you say, this is what I'm going to do with my life. How will what you, the skill that you are cultivating be used by the institutions which you are going to volunteer your labor? So it is not only the men of politics that sell out their people. You, 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 all of us are making choices in relation to the way in which we will make an income one day with what we learn at the university. Many of the evil things that we see all over are done by very nice people who go to church every Sunday and pay their tithes and are concerned about the state of the country. But whether it is that they cook their books in the form of accounting and auditing, uh, whether it is that they defend these things 
uh, in the course of uh, of court practice um, that they write agreements that bind communities to bondage and suffering, that the, the, the application of your conscience to the very exercise of your labor and how you sell it is part and parcel of what you know needs to be done. So the, 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 the exertion of this consciousness is not only to the grand historical problems with the actors like Mandela. All of us are, are faced with choices on a daily basis to make decisions um, according to our understanding. And, you know, this can only be done by continual and critical study. Uh, but ultimately, um, you know, this needs to direct us to, to the political situation, which leads to the kind of bondage that's experienced by African people all over the continent today. And what our forebearers understood and knew very well is that it would be impossible to gain liberation for a single African country while the others remain in bondage. That is just, that is just a pipe dream, you know. It is either all Africa will be liberated or, or none of it will be liberated. Um, and you know, the, as you you know, this is 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 just unfortunately the the fact that we are we are bound, our destiny is bound, and so th this is a consciousness that needs. But of course, directing ourselves towards the constitution will be a, a major first step in beginning to exercise our sovereign power. That will come with consequences. Of course, there were African leaders who did insist. Uh, on returning the wealth of the country to their peoples, um, you know, and, and there were consequences for that because they did it without other African countries because of the cowardice. If we study the case of Thomas Sankara, you see that the French had to get rid of him because he was quickly on a, a road to make a difference using his country's resources in favor of his people's destiny. So we, we, if we have another Sankara today, the same thing will happen. It is only if all of us throughout the continent at once uh, turn and stand against this, that it can be a sustainable revolt, you know. Otherwise, we may replace our old slave masters with new ones. Um, and this is something that is happening, I'm sure, if you can see the news, you know. Yeah. What I know Africa to my own existence now as I'm alive, what I've witnessed Africa as being is a continent that's just struggling to exist, to survive, to tend to its people. It's all about the struggles. We are still stuck in that historic prison, I'll say. Every time you interact with Africa, it's inter you're interacting with, with the consequences of conquest. It's never about enjoyment of freedom, enjoyment of equality. How do you reconcile continuous struggle for freedom never cease to stop. There's always something going on in Africa on African land. What is it about our blackness, our identity, our nature of African identity that allows for oppression? Yeah, so I mean, um, this is a this is an important and, and difficult question. Of course, Africa is not the only continent that was conquered. Um, you know, there are many peoples of the world. Latin America comes to mind. Um, where there is a great deal of suffering that, is, that remains as a result of this. In the case of Latin America, uh, America describes them as its backyard, you know. Um, but the, 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 the point is that the methods of, of establishing conquest are, are multiple. Uh, so one of the things which a conqueror can do 
Um, first, it's important to understand that conquest is not simply the defeat of someone in war, but the establishment of dominion over them, having defeated them in war. There is another alternative, which is genocide. Uh, one can eliminate the people who own a territory completely and occupy that territory. This is what happened in the United States. Uh, this is what happened in Canada. Um, the, the indigenous people have become a minority or, or, or most, uh, almost completely extinguished from existence. Australia, in fact, all the other settler colonies except for South Africa uh, consisted of the almost complete elimination of the indigenous people. And these now make up part of the white world. When you think of the United States, you think of white people or black Americans who are enslaved Africans who were taken there. So um, from that point of view, uh, we, we might say that the fact that we continue to exist um, suggests that we have at least survived genocide. And, and and still have a destiny of which to speak, a struggle. You know, one needs to be alive to struggle. So the optimistic part is that, of course, there are others uh, with resources which the white man wanted who are no longer there to struggle. Uh, but of course, there should be more to life than struggle. Um, yeah, so I mean, one of the major functions, I mean, um, of, of racism, um, and the so-called discovery of the new world is that if one studies the history of politics, even Western political theory, one of the major themes in the great philosophers is always the question of contradictions, economic and social contradictions, and their likelihood of causing revolution. So, you know, that if you have a state and you begin to accumulate uh, capital in one class of the society mm -hmm. and the other part of the society becomes impoverished as a result of this. Their progress and nice buildings which are being built on the basis of the subjugation of these people comes to a point where the people can't take it and they revolt and kill the noblemen and women. And you know, we there are numerous instances of this. If you read uh, Aristotle's politics, uh, one part of it is called on the causes of revolution. And this is one of the things. So this is more than 2000 years ago. This is something that was already seen that no constitution of a state can be sustained when there are massive economic and social contradictions. It's likely to lead to revolt. And then, you know, and sometimes revolt is called war, you know, and Europe is no stranger to the most massive wars which we've seen in the history of humankind, right? Now, one of the great accomplishments of the technology of conquest was that Europe was able to take these populations that were most likely to cause its instabilities. It's poor, it's uneducated, it's dejected classes, and export them to the so-called new world. The people that conquered us here, the great majority of the whites that came to the new world were prisoners uh, and poor and, and illiterate peoples of Europe uh, who, who posed a, a risk to the development of that state. They became the ruling classes here. Um, but 
the, the function of this was to secure the development and prosperity of Europe. They became overclasses here, and they were able to subjugate the peoples here, um, and then also, of course, to extract the wealth of, of the new world and send it back. So Europe then went on a trajectory of continuous development and relative peace on the back of, of, of subsidizing its own contradictions by exporting them. Now, this exportation of contradictions remains today in various kinds of ways. Many European corporations will, for instance, obey the laws of their countries that they should not pollute the water because people must drink it or the air because people must breathe it. But if you look at their operations in the so-called new world, the same companies commit all kinds of gross violations of the environment in those places. So there's a relationship of bondage in which the new world becomes the dumping ground, both for European populations that it does not want, as well as for some of the destructive patterns which ensure its economic growth. Um, the evolution of racism has, you know, come part and parcel of this, that, the, the, that black becomes the signifier of those who are fit for death. And this is a, you know, so blackness itself through this process uh, of the transatlantic slave trade and the colonial conquest of the continent became a signifier in, in, in this imaginary hierarchy of being for those who were closest to death. You know, in its theological guise, we were thought to be closest to the devil and the white man's whiteness signifying his, his moral and, and, and spiritual cleanliness and closeness to God. Uh, but in, in the other way, you know, the, Death is, is, is a black business, you know, and so um, the idea of blacks becoming signifiers of those who are fit for death comes from this. Now, I mean, amongst the, the, the history of the liberation movement, um, there have been many people. One that comes to mind is, is, is Marcus Mosiah Garvey, you know, of the, the, the United Negro Improvement Association, who had an, a major influence on, um, you know, the, the Africanists uh, in, in South Africa, uh, on Malcolm X in the United States. Their own thought was that this, this marking out of blacks for death is something which will never be resolved, will not come to an end until Africa is able to assemble a, a state a, a single strong state that can take care of its people and attach consequences uh, to the arbitrary abuse of black people. You are seeing today, I mean, uh, Malcolm X already began pointing this out in the 1960s with the ascent of, of China after its revolution, that the Chinese were in a similar situation uh, of being fit for death and humiliation. But as the Chinese state has gotten its business in order, that there are consequences to the violation. Today, if you insult an African or beat, there's nothing which, you know, there's nothing which these guys can do, you know. So they, we, we can bring out statements, we can complain, but there's nothing which we can do because, um, you know, despite the fact that, of course, much of the resources which run the world economy are derived from here. They are stolen from here with our leaders 
and ourselves just leaving our mouths open. If there could be consequences attached to the violation of Africans, this is something which would begin to change. So until the continent gets its business in order, all black people everywhere will continue to suffer uh, this historical malady. This was not always the case for Africa. You know, this is a one thing which is very important when one has the inclination towards pessimism is to recognize that this is a relatively recent mess of 500 years on a continent with several thousand years of, of, of history prior to the arrival of Europeans. And one of my interests in history is the way in which when people are conquered, their conquerors begin to disfigure their history in such a way that suggests that all they were fit for is their servitude, which they now have. You know, it's very important to understand that Africa was the very center of the world, um, you know, not so long ago. Um, but it, it, it is this that people have to become conscious of in order for us to get our business in order. It's in none of our interests for us to have these kinds of, of, of states that are a joke today because it places all of us at risk wherever we find ourselves. This is why blackness is something which even transcends class because uh, how much money you have is, is, is between you and your bank. When you are found in a department store wearing your skin, um, you, you, you receive the treatment that all of those, you know. If you entered Libya today, uh, whether you had a billion or you, you had a rand, you could be enslaved because you've been marked out for that. So it is our collective business and the divisions that we have on the basis of these false uh, things like states, the lines that the white man has drawn on, on linguistic groups, um, they actually serve the, the motion of keeping us in servitude. It is, you know, this is why Nguma wrote the text, Africa must unite. There, there's, there's nothing which is simple about this, but so long as we remain divided in this way, you know, that, that is why apartheid proper was precisely a method, a system which white supremacy could perfect the division of blacks on artificial lines and create territories where blacks would be bound to be. But the function of apartheid, that stage of white supremacy, was to minoritize people who were a majority, to prevent blacks from being able to understand their common plight by making them into Zulus, Corsas, Sutus, and giving them all their territories and competing interests would then make whites equal to them because they would just be another. In fact, whites emerged as a majority when blacks were broken down into. But the same thing that the Boers were trying to do with South Africa is a small little territory is what has been done to the entire continent successfully. I think of myself as a South African, you are a Nigerian. And in this way, we are trying to get the best deal with China. In this fight with each other, we all remain subjugated by not recognizing our common plight. So the Chinese themselves, I mean, were made up of small little ethnic groups who could have made countries of their own. Um, you know, it is the very organization as a collective entity that makes their bargaining power and ability to 
attach consequences to their violation. If they close or ban your product from being able to be sold in China, it, it could affect your very viability. That, that's more than a billion people speaking when they say no, you, you have to listen because, you know, so we have a similar kind of odds, but what we don't have is unity. And unfortunately, you will find a university campus, the Nigerians will be speaking only to Nigerians during the time that they are there. In fact, the people from KZN will be speaking to only the people from KZN. So you, you see the, the birth of a unified consciousness, which is the possibility condition to resisting and stopping this mess, mm. is something that, uh, you know, um, is left is left to people to organize. So far, I think we're getting to the end of this conversation. I, I really enjoyed every bit of the knowledge because I feel like everyone should have access. Not everyone has this privilege to be able to interrogate their place in society, why they are where they are. They just accept reality and not know that they have a very important role to play in how life happens to them and how if we keep having these conversations we can find a way to unite like you said and have a common purpose of liberation even when it came to the south africa's liberation um history there's a lot of sects that were just having contradictory uh, meanings of liberation why is it that we just we cannot have one sense of liberation isn't the the problems of africa the same so why are we having different approaches well, I mean, I think part of it will be a problem which is related to communication and the dissemination of, you know, the dialogue is the basis of, of establishing any kind of consensus between people. Um, but it is also, some differences are irreconcilable. In every place, um, in every family where you might invade a house forcibly uh, and then offer the people terms, the responses of the people may be different. There are those who will say, oh, you know, our conqueror has come with some nice technology here. Maybe, you know, we should let him stay. And there are those that will be offered some piece of the pie in order to agree to certain terms. So um, people do not get virtue by merely being Africans themselves. And, and you know, by the virtue of being African, desire what is best for Africans. So, there are various interpretations and differences on the line of religion, on the line of different kinds of moral commitments, uh, that even within people who are resisting, those differences will, will, will come about. There is, that is just the nature of human consciousness, that, uh, you know, even in the same household, children, you know, uh, become different things, you know, from, from the household, uh, the same household with the same parents and resources. Yeah, there are one sister will say my mother is a wonderful woman and the other one will say she's evil, you know, having been raised by the same mother because, you know, the way in which a human consciousness uh, finds its wholeness and completion is very different and so we ask different questions and pursue different things our threshold for pain and suffering our patience um is different um and so the, the in the process of finding liberation for a collective suffering of people a lot of discussion is required and hopefully you know the elimination of bad arguments can happen simply 
by discussion. But very often, it it turns to violence. You know, political violence is is sometimes structured on differences of principle between people. Um, you know, but currently, I mean, I think the the largest problem that we have as Africans collectively is ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, ignorance of, of of the plight of the continent um there are very few people who even know what is happening in our neighboring countries right now uh, who have even an idea of the history of our neighboring countries you know and so and, and this is something that certainly an education system can be banned for uh, we've been taught as though south africa is the universe and and it is it's not so the interrelations between South Africa and the rest of the, the family on the continent as a main basis, the developing and cultivating of the discipline of reading news across the continent so that you know what is happening uh, everywhere on the continent, to think of the continent as your home rather than li- this little corner. This forms the basis, you know. So um, if this is terrible because, of course, many children will have gone to schools where they have gone to school with people who come from their own town or province. But that when you come to university and there are people from all over the continent, one still remains ignorant and learns not um, is, is, a, is a function of the failure of, of the system as a whole. You know, So it is necessary uh, to break out of that South African consciousness. Uh, and understand uh, and understand our place you know this will will form the basis of being able uh, to organize on a much larger basis and this has been done before you know as i said there was a time when our predecessors uh you know understood what was happening on every corner of the continent you know people know more about the united states today they can tell you about wisconsin they can tell you about Brooklyn, they can tell you about the five boroughs of New York, but you dare ask them a question about Nigeria, you know, they, they, you know, so this has been by design, you know, so the fact that our filmmakers, uh, the fact that our writers, this, this kind of consciousness has not been at, at, at a level of competing at the level of, you know, you know, is something which is problematic, but the campus itself um, is disheartening. Students have become uh, corporate entities. You enter the campus with your headphones, you go to class, you study. You, there's, there's very much a, a lack of formation of communities. Part of this, I think, came from the COVID pandemic. Um, in addition to teaching people to be afraid of each other because crowds, touching proximity was associated with risk. What it has also done is that it's destroyed historical continuity. As a first year coming to campus, you would have found organizations of people who had already had reading groups, activist organizations, you would have joined, and then those students would have graduated and left you that. What happened is that by stopping everyone from coming to campus, the older generation of students who had established things already that they were given by their predecessors left. And then you had second or third years coming to campus for the first time and just minding their own business. So there isn't any... When I was a student, even here at the University of Pretoria, we had the anti-racism forum. 
you know, where we had teachings, where we studied collectively. People from law, from physics, were studying collectively problems of South African political history, problems in relating to gender, uh, problems in relation where we would debate and study texts together, you know. So the, the, the campus itself, it, 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 it is a very important part of, of, of development, you know, if you are lucky enough to get a university education, to test out your ideas and decide who you are going to become. And you are supposed to have an exposure of a vast world of people from different class backgrounds, different societies, from whom, all of whom offer you an opportunity to learn about something that you didn't know before you decide what you're going to do with your life. And this is an opportunity which is currently being wasted by a lot of people that don't that don't learn anything about you know uh, about anyone else during their time at university and this is something that uh, those who are interested in changing the world will is their starting point you know their starting point uh, for the formation of any kind of consciousness is, is a conversation is the posing of a question is the testing of a prejudice that somebody has by providing evidence from a different experience. If you don't talk to and are part of collective groups with other people, this is something that can never happen. And tyrants, political tyrants, uh, oppressive regimes always strive to atomize people, to prevent collectivity. They make laws to prevent people. Now there are no laws necessary. People are simply not organizing on a common. It's much easier to oppress people who don't communicate with each other. It's just like abusers. If you wish to abuse someone, you isolate them from their family and friends. Say, it is only I who can love you. You know, workers, it's the same. You don't know how much the others earn. You're told by your boss that you're earning much better than anyone. And the only way to prevent you from revolting is by you not speaking to the other workers to see your common plight and comparing with what the boss is actually doing for himself. You know, so the, the basis for any kind of political action and resistance begins first with communication and then unity. Because, you know, this is how people establish people's power. So the fact that people are so atomized, so individualized, uh, so self-concerned, um, is it, it really spells trouble for the future. Um, because the only way in which people can come to a higher consciousness uh, about their collective experience is, is through communication and making common cause with others. And it seems that no one even needs to resist. Here on this campus, meetings of people used to be broken up for nothing more than conversation with each other. The university used to have its own kind of riotous assemblies act to prevent people from organizing. But now the students have no desire to. They'll tell you, you know, about their timetable and wishing to get out in record time without learning any of this. And the world will not be changed uh, in this sort of fashion. It is their starting point to even asking what can we do about our situation. And of course, registering for jurisprudence. I agree with you. Everyone should have access to jurisprudence. So I do agree with you on that. One last question. You're back to Mandela because it's Mandela Day. <laughs> what is the important lesson so far, the good and the bad, 
that we can pick up from the celebration of Mandela's life. So, so as I said, uh, mm. I, you know, Mandela is by all means an exceptional individual who could have had a very comfortable life and chose to 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 engage in 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 battle with the, at least by his own limited interpretation of what was wrong with the country at the time. This is something that we can all learn about. But uh, I think uh, um, he, he, he could have done with being a better student uh, of South Africa in terms, you know, that a moral commitment itself, you know, it, it is the question that um, theory without practice is of course feeble, but practice without theory is, is thoroughly deadly. And the question of intellectual sovereignty is exactly that one, that all your action must be underpinned by careful thinking. It is good. People often become impatient with theoretical discussion. But the, que the point of theoretical discussion is to prevent needless death and suffering. You know, if you understand, for instance, the way in which heat works, you needn't touch a stove plate to know that it burns. If you understand the theory of heat and what each of, you know, so to study the situation carefully means we don't lose people because we take a route over the fire when we could have gone around it to get to our destination. So all too often, uh, people have been encouraged to take action and leave the theory or thinking to somebody else. Um, and I think it's very important that uh, people should should take the, make it their business to study the the problems of South Africa. So I think the nicest way for me to 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 end off our discussion would be by recommending something for students to read. Um, this is a is a way in which they can engage with the history of the country in in a particular way. One um, recommendation that I would make to students to, to study is a book called Black Power in South Africa, uh, The Evolution of an Ideology. This book is written uh, by a lady named Gail Gerhardt, Professor Gail Gerhardt. This is a good introduction to the history of, of modern black politics, uh, at least, you know, and that can be found relatively easily. There are many others and some better books, but very difficult to find. Uh, this one is something that can be found, but it is very important that students should do this. But I would also recommend during the time of university to organize a reading group with others, to become involved in the campus, you know, to, to, to speak to people outside of that which will serve your immediate needs, uh, to become involved in, in the struggles of other people so you can see what the relationship between you and other people actually is, you know, not to waste that opportunity. Right. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Baba. That was very insightful and had failed conversation about the future of South Africa and uh, hopefully at some point the emancipation of, of black folk in this country. Thank you so much. And I hope some other time we can have you on the podcast to discuss other more, less, you know, less dark matters. Dark, dark matters. No, I, look, I look forward to the game. No, so, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah. I appreciated the, the, mm. the, the invitation. Yeah, yes. Thank you so much. Right. Have a good day. You too. Yeah. I have just listened to the Africa Rights Talk podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channels, social media platforms such as Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening.